Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Julia LaRoche Show. Today's guest is Whitney Tilson, founder and CEO of investment newsletter publisher Empire Financial Research, who is also a former hedge fund manager with nearly two decades of managing money before he closed his hedge fund in September of 2017. I've known Whitney for probably about a decade at this point, and this is not your typical investing episode by any means. We talk a lot about life, life lessons, and avoiding what Whitney calls these five calamities in life. He outlines them in his new book, The Art of Playing Defense, which I read and I highly recommend it, especially for younger folks out there. It's a great read. We also talk about Whitney's own journey to becoming an investor. We talk about Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, of course, and the lessons there. And we got Whitney's take on the current state of the markets and why he's reasonably bullish in this environment. I really enjoyed this long form conversation with Whitney, and I think you will too. Whitney Tilson, founder and CEO of newsletter publisher Empire Financial Research, also a former hedge fund manager and the author of multiple books, including your newest the Art of Playing Defense, How to Get Ahead by Not Falling Behind. It is so great to have you on the show and great to see you again. Welcome, Whitney. Uh, thanks, Julia. Uh, good to see you and um, look forward to our talk. Me too. And we've known each other for probably close to a decade at this point. And I have this question for you that I've kind of always wanted to ask you and I never have. Um, and so maybe you'll be revisiting a bit of your childhood. And the question for you, Whitney, is, did you eat the marshmallow? <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Um, they never tell you. So um, you're referring, of course, to the famous marshmallow experiment uh, um, that was done back in the early 70s by uh, Stanford University uh, professor Walter Michel, um, and who, who published a book you know, a few years ago called The Marshmallow Experiment. And basically, they took 600 six-year-olds. Um, and my dad was a graduate student at Stanford at the time. And so I happened, I have no idea how it happened, but I happened to be one of the students that they tested. And, you know, they put us in a room um, and observed us through a one-way mirror. Um, uh, and they put a marshmallow in front of us, a treat. And they said, but if you wait, uh, we'll give you another marshmallow in five or 10 minutes. And uh, basically, long story short, the kids who exercised the self-control to wait and not eat that marshmallow um, had massively better life outcomes, not, not slightly better, massively better um, in turn, you know, 200 points higher SAT scores, likelihood of graduating from high school and college, uh, lifetime incomes, intact marriages, uh, whether you got in trouble with the justice system, you name it. Um, and so it's interesting, there been, there's been some recent research which has cast some doubt on this and, and whether it was more tracking um, whether you came from an intact family or a high income, well-educated uh, parents, that kind of thing. And that that correlated with whether you had the self-control to eat the marshmallow or not. And that obviously correlates very highly with life outcomes. Um, but it was an interesting study. It's one of my few claims to fame that I was one of those kids. Um, but they've been tracking me for 50 years since then. I'm now 56 years old um, and uh, tracking my entire life. And not only that, 10, I'd say 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, they sent a whole team of people out here. Um, and did a whole series of tests in person with not only me, but my oldest child to see whether it was hereditary and, and whether the, the adults now who didn't eat the marshmallow as kids, whether their kids also exercise self-control. And so I asked, it's now a chocolate chip cookie. And so I asked my oldest daughter, who maybe was 12 at the time, 
you know, did you eat the cookie? You know, how long were, were you willing? And she's like, of course not. And uh, she's a very, she's a prototypical first child, uh, very disciplined, dutiful, you know, uh, you know, driven, successful, whatever. Um, fortunately, I've had, I have three daughters who I would all characterize the same way, but first children in particular are, are tend, tend to be like that. And, uh, and so I asked, well, how long would you have waited? And she snorted and said forever, <laughs> right? There, she understood that this was a test and to pass the test, you don't eat the cookie. And so she would have never eaten the cookie. Right. But when you're six, maybe it's a little different. Right. She was a little older. Um, and by the way, I met Walter Michelle once. He passed away a couple of years ago, but I'd say 10 years ago, he was at Columbia and I reached out to him and he's always tickled to hear from one of the kids he tested. You know, this was now 40 years after the fact. And I went over and sat in his apartment and he was a lovely guy um, and, and chatted and all. And I asked him, have you ever told any of the 600 people? Um, and he said, no, we can't. We can't tell them because it might bias their answers mm. when, as we continue to test them throughout their life. But he did confess that he did tell one guy who just had to know who was on his deathbed. And so uh, so uh, Professor Michelle told told him. I think it's safe to assume, though, that you didn't eat the marshmallow. Yes, um, yeah. I was, uh, uh, um, you know, given my life outcomes are extremely highly correlated with those who didn't eat the marshmallow, I would guess so. Um, the only, if if I did eat the marshmallow, there's a very simple explanation for it, though, is, is that, um, I know you'll find this hard to believe, Julia, but I was a very hyperactive ADHD kid, um, <laughs> which is sort of how I am as an adult, too. Um, but, you know, it's so it's possible that that hyperactivity or something might have taken over for a moment and I snarkled the marshmallow, but I would suspect not. Mm -hmm. You have an interesting background. I, I read your book, The Art of Playing Defense, and we'll definitely dive into it because it is not your typical, um, it's not even your typical life advice book. And it's certainly not an investing book, though I would argue it is um, great for anyone in any any field, including folks who want to get into investing. But um, I want to kind of revisit a bit about your 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 background. Um, you grew up, uh, some of your childhood was spent um, in Africa. And talk to me about your background and how you even got interested in pursuing a career in finance. Right. Well, I have um, one of the most unusual backgrounds for someone who ends up in finance uh, um, in that my parents were the third couple to meet and marry in the Peace Corps in 1962. Uh, uh, they had left the Peace Corps and I was born in 1966, but they uh, have remained for most of their careers remained in the field of international development. My dad has a doctorate in education uh, at Stanford. That's when I lived out there as a kid. Um, but his specialty is educational projects in third world countries. So um, I spent half more than half my childhood, um, three years in Tanzania, ages two to five. That's where I first went to school. I was the only white kid in a classroom of Tanzanian farmers children mostly and my parents told told me I used to come home crying because I had this horrible straight white hair and I wanted curly black hair like all the other kids um, and I had my parents dressed me in these awful sneakers whereas the other children had shiny black shoes 
Um, and and there are funny pictures of me where uh, of, of where I had a hoe uh, over my head, you know, digging dirt in the yard because I wanted to be a farmer like all the other children. Um, so that may have, you know, influenced me in a number of ways, um, you know, given me a, a, an appreciation certainly later in life for the incredible privileges and uh, good fortune I've had to be born to two of the greatest parents anyone could ever ask for. Um, but then after uh, we moved back, my dad was working on his PhD at Stanford, ages five to eight. Then we moved down to a project. He was working on a radio mathematics project in Nicaragua uh, back during the under the dictator Somoza before the Sandinistas took over. And so it was a relatively quiet period there from 74 to 77, ages 10 to 11, uh, eight to 11, I guess. And then uh, my dad hadn't finished his PhD. So we moved back to Stanford for a year. Um, and then my dad took a job as dean of uh, academic dean, fa dean of faculty at Northfield Mount Hermon School in Western Massachusetts, about two hours west of Boston, which is where um, um, so I went my last year of public school was in a little brick schoolhouse in Northfield, Massachusetts, a little town of 3000 people. Uh, but then my parents, um, much to my chagrin, sent me off to an all boys boarding school. But I was a day student called Eagle Brook. Um, and I had to commute 45 minutes each way. And I was very upset because I was starting to develop an interest in girls and there were no girls at this school. And also I had a lot of friends who were all going off to the local high school um, and junior high. And, uh, you know, I went uh, I had to go off to this horrible private school, but it really made it really put me on a totally different educational trajectory. Um, you know, my parents um, sacrificed a lot to give me the very best educational opportunities, uh, which is, you know, really um, defined the trajectory of my life. Um, so uh, I went to Eagle Brook for a couple of years, then was a fac brat at Northfield Mount Hermon uh, for four years, uh, and then moved to Boston for Harvard uh, two years um, working at Boston Consulting Group. And my first job out of college was actually helping Wendy Kopp start Teach for America. That's right. So, yeah. yeah, so that's sort of, uh, I've gone back and forth in the nonprofit sector and the for-profit sector. You know, I got the do-gooder gene from my parents. Um, so did a couple years at BCG, went to Harvard Business School for a couple years, uh, met and married my wife, um, met her when Bill Ackman and I uh, crashed the Harvard Law School orientation booze cruise of Boston Harbor. And she and Bill had gone to Hebrew school together when they were kids. Um, and she recognized him and came up and started talking to him. And I elbowed my way into the conversation and the rest is history. But I, I always joke to her that she married the wrong hedgie. Uh, so, uh, and she laughs and she says, oh my God, I could never be married to Bill. Bill's one of our closest friends, <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, Susan's more of a type B personality and I'm more of a type A personality, but we're not so different, right? Bill is like, if you Google type A personality, I'm sure he's like, his picture pops up, right? Mm -hmm. He, he takes it to an extreme, you know, you know, far more than me. Um, and I say that with love. Uh, so um, so moved down to New York following Susan, who finished uh, law school a year ahead of business uh, year before I finished business school and spent five years after business school running a nonprofit organization that I had started with Michael Porter while at HBS uh, called the Initiative for a Competitive Inner City. And uh, then uh, to your question, you know, how did I with this background, um, you know, at this point in my life, after business school, approaching age 30, um, I had never owned a stock in my life. 
when I got the Wall Street Journal, I used to throw away the money and investing section. I was super interested in business, um, fancied myself being an entrepreneur, both in the for-profit and nonprofit sectors, and in fact, had already been, um, uh, you know, helped start Teach for America, and then was the executive director and co-founder of the Initiative for a Competitive Inner City. Um, and so the answer is, is, um, is necessity is the mother of invention. My entire life, basically, I'd either had no money or had been in debt. I, um, I took on debt to go to Harvard Business School, uh, but fortunately married a lawyer. She had a good income. We lived in her grandparents' apartment. So even though I was earning 75 grand a year, uh, I think I was the lowest paid Harvard Business School graduate from my class of 1994 for the subsequent five years um, because my, my, I just had a fixed $75,000 salary. I remember, in fact, going back to my fifth reunion and they had done a survey of the 800 of us and they asked, how much money have you earned in the, the past five years since you graduated? And they showed a, a bell curve of the answers. And if I looked closely, the very left tail was me. I was that data point. Um, I was, I was, 800th out of 800 in terms of my earnings after Harvard Business School because I worked, I ran a nonprofit, um, you know, and had a low, low salary, no bonus. Uh, but it was a great period working with Michael Porter was a privilege. I learned a lot from him. So again, how do you get from this to starting a hedge fund the following year? And the answer is, is um, despite my low income, uh, my my we had very low costs. Um, our first child didn't come along till 1996, and then 99 and 02. Um, but so we had the best kind of rent control, that being family rent control. Uh, we didn't spend much money, um, and my wife had a good income as a corporate lawyer, and so we saved. And so I paid off my business school debt, and then lo and behold, there was ten thousand dollars in our checking account. I noticed one day. And, I, and I'd never had 10,000 in my checking account. So I said, as so I was thinking to myself, well, what do I do? What should I do with this? So I called up my friend, Bill Ackman, who was one of the few people at the time, like everybody from HBS now goes into hedge funds. They either yeah. go into hedge funds or venture capital, right? Yeah. Um, and, and the real losers go into iBanking consulting, right? Which didn't used to be the case back 30 years ago in my day. Everyone went into iBanking consulting and nobody had even really heard of hedge funds back at the time. But Bill was a pioneer in the space. Uh, he graduated two years ahead of me in 1992. He was a year ahead of me in college, two years ahead of me in business school. Um, and he had started this hedge fund called Gotham Partners and had grown it from launching at 3 million. He was up to 500 million and he was, you know, teaming up to, uh, with Lucadia to make a bid for Rockefeller Center. And he was already making a name for himself. So I, I remember I called Bill up. I said, Bill, I've got 10,000 bucks. I want to invest it. And keep in mind, this was the late nineties. Stocks were ripping. It was the, the beginnings of the internet bubble. And so it was exciting. And it was the early days of the internet and, you know, the Motley Fool website and people were pumping stocks on the message boards, just like they are today. These people on Reddit today think they've discovered something new, you know, pumping GameStop and Bed Bath and Beyond. This is the oldest story. Um, and it was happening online back in the late 90s. So I sort of got sucked into that. And so, Bill, I remember his exact words when I said, you know, I need to learn about investing and I want to invest this $10,000 I have. What should I do? And his exact words were, read everything Warren Buffett's ever written and you can stop there. 
Wow. And those were pretty smart words. Uh, so I'd heard of this guy, Buffett, but again, I'd never owned a stock, um, didn't really know much about him, but I managed to track down some of his annual letters and started reading. And actually in 1999, I think it was, maybe even 98, um, I went out to my first Berkshire annual meeting and basically you know, given I come from a penny pinching family, you know, my mom loves nothing more than clipping coupons and going to the supermarket and then coming home and boasting about how much money she saved, right? My parents to this day can squeeze squeeze a dollar till it screams. Um, and so the idea of buying dollar bills for 50 cents, which is fundamentally what Warren Buffett talks about, what value investing is about, uh, resonated with me. And so uh, so I started investing, uh, in, in a few stocks and because not because I was any great stock picker actually, but because stocks were just going up, it was a bull market. Um, I started making money and, you know, for a guy for whom $10,000 was like a fortune, it was the most money I'd ever had in my life. Um, I remember putting $20,000 of my wife's IRA at her law firm into AOL because I was was a user and and uh, an early user back at Harvard Business School. They gave us those little discs that were everywhere back in wow. the 90s. Um, and uh, that was my very first email address, wrtilson at aol.com uh, that I used for years. And so I knew the company and I thought I had good growth prospects um, and lots of people were talking about it because I was sort of a clueless fool at the time. Um, so I bought AOL stock in 1998. Um, within one year, that $20,000 had turned into $120,000. It was up 6X. And I thought two things. One, that I died and gone to heaven. I just made 100 grand and didn't lift a finger. Um, and that's a lot of money at any point in time. But back then, it was it was like unimaginable. My mind was just exploding, right? But secondly... I thought I was God's gift to investing. Uh, I mean, what a genius I was. And back then, keep in mind, it was the tech stocks that were ripping. So Warren Buffett and Bill Ackman, well, they were doing okay, but they weren't making six times their money in a year. So I thought, well, I'm a look at me, you know? And so that was the mindset with which I launched my own little hedge fund with a million dollars on a rickety Ikea desk in the corner of our bedroom um, and a laptop. That was it. Um, and uh, Bill gave me, I don't know, $100,000. My parents and my in-laws and I each chipped in 100 or 200 or something. Bill's dad gave me a little bit of money. A couple of my friends from business school, you know, threw in 10 grand or 50 grand, whatever. And you add it all up, it was 15 investors and I had a million dollars to start with. And um, I had absolutely no business starting my own hedge fund. I never worked a day in the financial industry, you know, much less at a hedge fund or something. Um, you know, I look back and shudder to think um, what a clueless fool of an investor I was. Uh, but I will give myself credit for at least being a fast learner. Um, and after I started this little hedge fund, you know, I started paying more attention to Bill, who was preaching value investing and buying high quality businesses and avoiding Internet stocks. And then I stumbled into Joel Greenblatt's class at Columbia Business School, um, and he's a legendary sort of special situation value investor. And he let me sit in on the back of his class as he was teaching uh, MBA students at Columbia in the spring of 2000, right as the Internet bubble was peaking. 
And so somehow that got through my thick skull and the fact I was making all this money on my tech stocks. Um, and I got out of my tech stocks and started buying Berkshire Hathaway and stuff like that in the nick of time. And so that was, you know, that was sort of how I made the pivot from, uh, from you know, being a nonprofit, mostly a nonprofit entrepreneur uh, into running a hedge fund. Yeah, there's so, you know what I love about this podcast? You can answer as long as you want. I don't mind because I'm I'm in, I enjoy listening to the stories. Um, and so that's yeah, one of the and things. And I, I tend to always, be long winded, so I don't mind. <laughs> I always good, let my right? guests talk uninterrupted. Um, you know, I think I talk ten percent of the time on average, and let the guests have ninety, which is great. Okay, so there's a by lot. By the of- way, speaking of which, in life, one of the things I have learned is to do the opposite, which is if you want, um. If you want people to like you, if you want to have strong relationships and all, the more you let them talk and ask uh, questions about them and so forth, the more interesting and likable they will find you. And it doesn't come naturally to me. Naturally, I'm a narcissist blabbermouth, right? (laughs) That's that's the story of my youth. Um, But as I've matured and my wife has had an influence on me, um, as Buffett and Munger have had an influence on me. Um, and I still remember reading um, Dale Carnegie's book. Um, uh, I'm spacing the name of it right now. I'm having so oh, many- Oh, How to Win moments. Friends and Influence how People. How to Win Friends and yeah. Influence People. Yeah, Thank which you. is one of those Buffett rec- recommendations as well. Exactly. I yeah. think he may have been the one who recommended it. It's, you know, so I don't know, sold 100 million copies since it was first published, you know, 100 years ago or so. But I can, I can save all your listeners the time of reading the book. It's very simple. Number one, no one gives a crap about you. Number two, they only get they only care about themselves. Therefore, number three is if you want people to like you is um, show genuine interest in them and don't talk about yourself. Um, and so <laughs> so um, and it's sort of funny Um uh, how like that, that book and those three little blurbs changed my life. Like it opened my eyes and I write about it in the art of playing defense. Uh, it's do, one yeah, of my yeah. main pieces. It's one of my, you know, I don't know, hundreds of pieces of advice, you know, that I try and impart in my book, uh, which I wrote for my three daughters who are ages 26, 23 and 20 now. Um, but the book was uh, mainly, I just sort of felt like, you know, I've, I've gone through life gotten a lot of scars on my back and a lot of lumps and learned a lot of lessons the hard way. Um, and I figure I should try and impart the most important lessons I've learned uh, over the years um, to my daughters. And, um, you know, my wife has a wonderful, deep connection with my daughter. She talks to them on the phone every day or whatever. And I envy that relationship. And, and you know, I, and I, I wish... Uh, you know, I don't know whether, you know, mothers and daughters just generally connect better like that, right? Um, and, uh, or maybe it's me and and I just haven't made enough of an effort, but for whatever reason, I actually thought the best way I could uh, impart my wisdom to my daughters was to write a book. And so I wrote it for them. And if nobody else in the world reads it, I don't care. Um, but I'm glad to see that, you know, other people, um, you know, it's, it certainly has not been a bestseller. I give it away for free to anybody who wants it. Um, but, uh, but you know, I, I get nice feedback from it. Yeah, you certainly do. Um, including if folks go check out your latest newsletter today, you're, um, they'll see, uh, 
uh, it was a military, uh, someone in the Air Force, I think, was recommended. Yeah, he, he flew F 16s for the Air Force. He's now a United pilot, but he yeah. mentors cadets at the Air Force Academy. And um, a book about Charlie Munger and my book, he's, he told me last night when uh, we got together for drinks in New York. You know, I love sort of meeting my longtime readers. You know, he's been reading my stuff for like 20 years and, mm -hmm. and happened to have a layover in New York and said, hey, you know, I'm a fan. You want to get together? And um, and, um, you know, I, I, I don't often have time for it, but I always enjoy it uh, when I can find the time. And uh, he's a great guy. And uh, he, he really flattered me when he said I'm one of the my book is one of the two books that he recommends that his cadets read. Yeah. Um, well, speaking of being like a father, and you, you mentioned you have three daughters. Um, I in your book, like this was something that was interesting. I'm not a parent yet. Um, mm -hmm. Hopefully, one day soon. Mm -hmm. You talk about um, the importance of playing sports with your daughters, and yeah. you were very active in terms of like the weekends. I think it was like the Whitney Olympic. What did you the call Daddy it? Olympics. The Daddy yes. Olympics. Every, the Daddy every Olympics. weekend in Central Park. Talk to me about. Um, the importance of that involvement in your daughter's lives and, you know, why that was so critical, like the, the, yeah. the athleticism part of it, doing sports yeah, um, together. Um, I've, uh, uh, I will say my wife, like from the day she was born, I think has the mothering nurturing gene and she deserves the lion's share of the credit, uh, for, uh, um, for, raising our daughters uh, both the time invested but the impact she's had on them and you know knock on wood they're all just really thriving um and I'm, I'm super proud of them and all but um i i at least attempted to read some of the literature a, a really impactful book was called the price of privilege and it it's a shrink who works with teenagers who grow up in basically top 1% households. And I live on the Upper East Side of New York, which is the wealthiest census tract in the United States. My daughters uh, for K through 12 attended um, a very expensive elite private all-girls school and all. Um, and it's, it's absolutely hilarious by any U.S. or global standard. Um, my wife and I are very comfortable, you know, easily in the top 1%, right, in the United States and top one-tenth of 1% 1 in the world. Um, you know, we are comfortable, um, but my daughters sort of think we're poor because their friends are flying around in private jets and have $70 million homes in the Hamptons, which we do not have that kind of money, right? Our apartment, uh, you know, is a very nice apartment right across the street from Central Park on Fifth Avenue is very nice, but it's it's very modest. It's below average, you know, among their friend group. So, so um, you would think, you would think that children growing up amidst just unimaginable privilege and wealth would be all thriving and, you know, because the, they don't have a wanter in the world, right? Um, and the answer is, is that, no, these kids are suffering from anxiety, depression, um, suicide attempts, fortunately, uh, un uh, horrifically, a few successful um, eating disorders, um, it, you know, and, and um, you know, uh, what, what there's a phenomenon basically called failure to launch, which is I have many friends who have kids who are graduating from college um, and, you know, good colleges, and they've gone to elite private schools and good colleges, 
and they're I don't know they're bagging groceries at Whole Foods or 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 whatever like they just uh, you know they they just aren't on a career track aren't getting good training you know whatever right um, so you know I look at this and um, and so um, you know again I'm not asking anyone to cry a river for wealthy families and privileged kids uh, but just pointing out that you know my job and my wife's job, parenting children growing up in this uh, environment um, is there's still a lot of challenges. And um, I have, uh, I, uh, so, so um, this gets, this is the context in which I'm gonna, I'm giving you a long-winded answer to understand the question, why was it important to me to raise athletic daughters? And um, there were two studies that I've never been able to find again, but I remember them well. Uh, number one was a study that showed that girls that played varsity sports in high school were much less likely um, to get derailed in the ways that high school girls can get derailed. Um, um, eating disorders, anxiety and depression, cutting, um, uh, promiscuity, etc. Um, and of course, you know, dropping out. Um, and then there was a second study that, sh that um, asked 12-year-old girls a super simple question. Do you like yourself? And it's hard to think of a more fundamental question of any human being, right? Do you like yourself? And it turns out 80%, I'm sort of making up numbers here because I probably read this 20 years ago and I've never been able to find the actual study. Um, but 80% of girls said yes at age 12. By age 14, that had crashed to 30%. Only 30% of 14-year-old girls in the United States answered yes to do you like yourself. So what, what the heck happened? And the answer is, is um, they hit puberty. Um, they started, it's uh, when you start to enter adulthood and you get bombarded with all the advertising and the images of perfection, of, of beauty, which is Social associated media. with- yeah. And keep in mind, this study was even pre-social media. Yeah. Like now it's on steroids. The The rate of anxiety, depression, suicide attempts among teenagers, really since the advent of the iPhone, because that's when um, social media, the Instagram, everybody leading perfect lives and airbrushing their pictures. So they have perfect bodies, perfect clothing, perfect lives, perfect vacations. Um, it's incredibly um, damaging and destructive, particularly to impressionable teenagers and especially girls who are judged much more so uh, about their appearance uh, at all. And I know you've been, uh, you know, you've been in the, you were a beauty contestant and so forth. And so I'm, I'm sure you could. Uh, um, like you, 10 years you, ago, maybe. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but uh, you know, I, I can, I can, I can imagine you could, uh, you could speak volumes about this, um, but I've certainly observed it. So, um, so um, those, um, uh, I wanted my daughters. Um, so, so basically, what happens to girls uh, from age twelve to fourteen through their teenage years, and who knows how much longer? Um, there's a, a dramatic drop in self confidence and self esteem. And so I wanted my girls to be physically strong, athletic, um, and just to, because I felt like that would help offset all this horrible messaging 
and all. And I wanted that, uh, them to, you know, be able to do a lot of pull-ups and be brave and fearless out there, you know, going down the big slides and, you know, whatever, just being sort of bold, um, et cetera, because I, I knew that there was nothing I could do. I mean, if anything in this elite little Upper East Side bubble in which we live, these pressures around beauty and thinness and all are the absolute highest. Um, so in particular, um, eating disorders, um, uh, you know, basically girls starving themselves um, to the point of being skeletons. Um, I, I, I run in Central Park or bike in Central Park pretty much every day. And I, it's a rare day when I'm out in the park for, you know, half an hour to an hour that I do not see at least one um, obviously anorexic woman out there generally jogging. Um, and um, among my friends, um, I'm not sure if it's a majority, but it is a substantial number of my friends um, who have teenage daughters are dealing with eat eating disorders. Those daughters are suffering from eating disorders. So um, so um, I, I identified this as probably the number one risk factor that my daughters faced. So what do we do about it? Uh, one part of it certainly was starting at age six months, you know, every weekend, because uh, I was traveling a lot. My wife was more the weekday parent, and I tried to make up for it by being the weekend parent uh, and taking the girls and just giving my wife a, a, a break. And so I would just take them out in Central Park, you know, after breakfast, and we would just go out for the day, basically. And I would bring one of these big double joggers, and I was on my rollerblade, so I'd be getting some exercise, pushing one, two, and uh, um by the time the third one came along, the oldest one could ride a bike. So she'd be riding a bike. I'd be pushing two of the kids in the jogger. Um, and we had our favorite playgrounds with the biggest slides. We'd go to the merry-go-round, et cetera. Um, but I also had soccer balls, uh, a big old you know, plastic baseball bat. And I'd throw balls at them and they would hit them with the bat. Then we'd uh, pull out the soccer balls and kick soccer balls around. Um, you know, I put them on rollerblades and scooters at an early age. Um, at age three, I took away the training wheels on their bikes. Um, you know, most most kids learn to ride bikes at age six. Um, I figured at age three, I could teach them. And lo and behold, these tiny little children, you know, would bike ride along on this tiny little bike, um, but with no training wheels, you know, developing balance and and that kind of skill and coordination. So, um, and so all of my daughters played multiple varsity sports, you know, starting in really eighth grade, not just at the end of high school, but early, um, they were all good athletes. Um, and to this day, all of them have the habit, which I think is one of the most important habits to have of just exercising every day. They, they go to the gym, they have their Peloton, not Peloton biking, but the Peloton actually has like a workout thing, just a video with someone, uh, one of their trainers who will just give you a good workout in the gym. Um, it's a habit that both my wife and I have as well. So they're sort of modeling that. And I think that's, you know, they, they, you know, they got through their teenage years, like overflowing with self-confidence. Uh, and that's, that's, uh, super important. Um, and the, um, you know, being, being good athletes, um, and uh, being able to run, you know, my oldest daughter ran the New York City Marathon and my, you know, all, all of my daughters have, have um, uh, you know, I think have very healthy body images and, uh, and exercise regularly. And, and that was an important part of, you know, avoiding eating disorders. And the other part of it was, is at home, the words diet, the word diet has never been mentioned in this house. Uh, 
Um, my wife cooks healthy food. We keep healthy food in the house, but there's also some ice cream. There's frosted mini wheats. We all have our weaknesses. Um, and so we just, you know, ate healthily and there was never, ever, ever, not once any comment about what our daughters were eating or, oh, you shouldn't eat so much of that. Or why are you having a dish of ice cream at 10 PM? That's not healthy. It'll make you fat. Like those little comments can, can be absolute neutron bombs, um, and lead to eating disorders. So never any commenting about dieting or eating and never, ever, particularly uh, the research shows that girls, teenage girls are especially influenced by what their fathers say about women's appearances. So I was always super cognizant, um, to never talk about any woman's appearance or ever say, you know, anything disparaging about someone who was overweight, um, um, or, or, or for example, only complimenting my wife. Oh, oh, you look so beautiful tonight when she's all dressed up wearing a lot of makeup, right? If you only, if you only make that comment when your spouse is, you know, all dressed up and wearing makeup, then you're almost the absence of that comment. The rest of the time also speaks volumes, right? So, um, so look, I don't, again, my wife deserves all the credit for how my girls have turned out, but at least by being deliberate and thinking about it, doing some reading, um, and being very, very careful in in what I in, in anything I said, even little things. Um, you know, I, at least I helped avoid the landmines um, that could have led to eating disorders. Yeah, well, and it's also it's a partnership, and like Warren Buffett often says, the most important decision you make is who you choose to be your life partner. Yeah, 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 yeah. Who you marry. Yeah. yeah, that was that was super impactful to me. I still remember he's, a, a, one of the Berkshire meetings 20 years ago or something. Someone asked him, you know, about what's your best advice. And he, he said or um, and he said, num the most important decision you will make is who you marry. The second most important decision you make in your life is what career you choose. Mm -hmm. And he said, I can't even think of what's number three, like those two. Basically, determine all of your waking hours. If you pretty much all of your waking hours, you're either at home with your spouse or doing something with your spouse most of the time, um, or you're at work. Well, and maybe, you you better like those two things, or you're gonna have a miserable life. Maybe also, I would add, and I'm not Warren Buffett, but if I were gonna pick third, I'd say it would be your relationships and who you associate with, and you know your friendship with Bill Ackman, for example. That's how you met your wife. Was had had she not recognized him? And I don't know whose idea it was to go on that booze cruise, but good idea. It was, um, it, well, it was Bill's, Bill's college roommate was, a uh, was starting Harvard law school. Bill was starting Harvard business school and I was working at BCG in downtown Boston. So Bill's college roommate was sort of a nerdy guy and wanted a wingman for this social event. Um, so he called up Bill and said, Hey, Bill, will you come with me and be my wingman? And then Bill thought to call me because the booze cruise was leaving from Boston Harbor, which is only a few blocks from where I worked. And so the only two people of the 400 people on that boat who were not Harvard Law School first year students were Bill and me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and we were there very explicitly. We, we wanted to, we were there to meet, you know, neither of us was dating anyone and, and, you know, one of the things I talk about in my book is, is you want to fish in the right ponds when looking for a spouse. And I sort of give a couple funny examples of, you know, the Navy SEAL who um, 
who confessed that he had met his the woman he later ended up marrying uh, working the pole at a strip club. And his friends told him that the moment you go out on deployment, she's going to start cheating with you with your best friend and empty your bank account. And he ruefully admitted that's exactly what happened. OK, <laughs> um, and then I contrasted that with another one of my friends, a well-known hedge fund guy whose name you would recognize, who met his wife when he was volunteering to guide a blind runner in the New York City Marathon. Mm. And she was also doing that. So if you think about, you know, those would be two pawns in the opposite extreme. So I would argue going on the Harvard Law School orientation boost cruise um, is a good pond to fish in. And so yeah. Bill and I showed up to do some fishing. And what's really hilarious is that at the end of the evening, he had two women who were we were going to go out to pizza afterward. So he had he had met two women <laughs> that he was bringing with him, one for each arm, I guess. And <laughs> And the the one woman I had met was actually a fr old friend of Bill's. So I was sort of, uh, you know, and so lo and behold, Susan came out with us. So that was the two of us and the three of them uh, went out for pizza afterward. Yeah, well, it worked out. And also introducing you to the world of value investing, uh, Charlie, Charlie Munger, you Warren bet. Buffett. You yes. bet. I mean, so your point is, is very well taken. That That is exactly what I would list as number three, which is, you know, after who you marry is, is, is your other important relationships so um critically um another by the way I, I could i could give you buffett and munger quotes off the top of my head for hours but because they've had such an impact on me but a second very impactful one was um, um uh, at the annual meeting long ago was is how do you define success and buffett said if the people who should love you do love you so the people who should love you are, um, in addition to your spouse, st let's start with your spouse and your children, your parents, your siblings, um, and then your extended family and so forth. And then, you know, do you have friends? Um, I was just listening to uh, a podcast just uh, a couple of days ago, and let me, it was uh, the professor who's run one of the most famous studies ever, the Harvard study of the class of 1926. So they've been following um, a group of, of 260 men for basically a century. Um, and the, there are so many important findings, uh, but the most important, I would argue, in uh, which I include in my book, um, is that the quality of your life, the single biggest determinant of the quality of your life and your happiness is your relationships. Do you have strong relationships? And one way of testing that is, is if you have an emergency in the middle of the night, who would you call? And an alarming number of people who live alone, they don't have a spouse, can't answer that question. There's nobody they can call. The it's and this is indicative of an epidemic of loneliness, yeah. not just in the United States, but across the world. Um, it's happening in every country. And I would actually argue that social media is contributing to that because it's turning what used to be to have a relationship prior to social media. You used to actually have to do one of two things, either be with someone in person or call them on the phone. And those two ways of interacting with people tend to build relationships over time, right? But now you can just click like on somebody's post or you can um, accept their Facebook friend request. 
But that's not a relationship. I have over 3,100 friends on Facebook. And so that's a mile wide and an inch deep. But those aren't the people who, if you have a crisis, um, you know, you can call. And by the way, um, another fundamental test um, that really had an impact on me, and I forget where I read it or first heard it, is, is the simple question, would, um, how many people do you have in your life who would hide you? And this, of course, refers to Jews what, during uh, the Holocaust, the, the ones who survived if they didn't actually somehow escape uh, to the United States or get out in time, the ones who survived in areas controlled by the Nazis, who were trying to kill all of them, of course, um, were ones where non-Jews risked their own lives to hide their Jewish friends. Um, and but um, and that's a you know so think about think about how many people um, do you have in your life who would risk their own life to hide you, to save, to, to save your life? Um, that's a pretty fundamental question. So the number, I would argue that the results of this Harvard study, et cetera, et cetera, um, show that it's those kind of relationships and how many of those relationships you have in your life that will determine your success and happiness. So um, as Buffett correctly points out, the number one relationship, the person who you will spend the most time with over the rest of your life is your spouse. That's most important. Um, but then the sort of collection of do you have strong relationships with your family and do you have a strong friend group um, is, is critically important. And I'll share with you the one, the one takeaway from the YouTube video that I was just watching yesterday about this guy who's one of the professors who's run this Harvard study is is if you want to improve the quality of your life, sit down and figure out, okay, how can I um, have more deep relate have have deeper relationships with more people? Mm -hmm. um, are there um, people in my friend or family group where um, there's something has impacted our relationship? Can I repair that and improve that? and get it back to where it should be with a brother or a child or where you're estranged. Um, you know, my grandfather didn't talk to his brother for the last 40 years of his life because they had some stupid argument. Like that's just madness. Um, you know, um, and, and is there a way that you can, um, you, you can turn a distant friend into a closer friend? Um, the guy in the YouTube video actually had an interesting idea. He said, just think about somebody who you were thinking about, who you appreciate. They did something they've had a positive impact on your life and just send them a quick email or a text just saying, Hey, I just want to let you know, I really appreciate you, you know, and, and uh, you know, something like that, you know, that's a small step toward creating a deeper relationship with someone. You know, I tend to take it to an extreme, you know, I invite all my friends to go skiing with me, you know, all the adventures that I do, um, you know, the more of my friends who come with me, uh, the better. And, you know, I sometimes send out a blast email saying, hey, I'm skiing at Snowbird this weekend. This is what I did last weekend um, on Saturday and Sunday. And lo and behold, an old friend who lives in Salt Lake City said, yeah, I'll come ski with you for two days. And he brought along two of his friends. And, um, you know, the result was, is I now have dramatically deepened my relationship with someone who is more of an acquaintance, number one, but I have two new friends, you know, uh, his two friends that we skied together and, you know, I've added them to one of my email lists or something. And, and, you know, so, so I, I tend to be pretty good at going through life, um, you know, collecting friendships and, uh, I do a lot of things, to try and deepen relationships with people. So on that score, uh, you know, I'm, I do pretty well.
you are really good at that. And um, gosh, this conversation, it, it reminds me, I had Scott Galloway on the podcast. So when you talk about the loneliness epidemic, we talked yes. about that, especially amongst men. Um, yes, because men, yeah. Um, Scott is a friend and w- one of my absolute favorite thinkers and all. Amazing. And um, and his his writing and thinking and what he's been preaching to young people and all and the book he wrote oh uh, can you remind me the name of it it's um, adrift america and 100 Charts. yeah that's his that's his new algebra book, of which, happiness which actually i i have here and it's not on audible and i'm like scott you're killing me he's like oh, it doesn't work it on audible because the book is you know you have to have the of, charts full of charts and all well, no, he does it's, actually read it on audible he I, so i have the audio oh is it version. now on audible because yeah, when it first it. came out i tried to order it on audible so thank you yeah. for telling me that yeah. um but um, he wrote a book, um, which I can uh, look is up Is it The here. Algebra of Happiness? Yes, thank you. The Algebra of Happiness, which is actually probably the most similar book that I'm aware of to my, to my book, uh, The Art of Playing Defense. Um, um, and in fact, I quote him a couple times um, directly um, in, in my book uh, because he has been talking about this, how social media has had this destructive thing, the epidemic of loneliness, um, and how particularly men, um, he's written some beautiful stuff. I highly recommend signing up um, for your listeners. Um, um, uh, Definitely sign up for my free investing daily, which I always have personal stuff at the end of it. You can just go to empirefinancialresearch.com and type in your email to get that. Uh, but then go to just Google. I don't know what the website is, but Google Scott Galloway um, uh, blog or something like that. I think it's No and Mercy, No Malice. Yeah, No Mercy, No Malice is what he calls his blog. I um, mean, you can just sign up for it and get it sent to you. But, you know, he was recently writing about, you know, his college friends and how um, telling stories and how one of them committed suicide um, and how Scott always, um, feels like, you know, could I have been a better friend to him and, you know, whatever, but how others affected his life because he grew up sort of poor with a single mom and, and how his friends in college influenced him. So the people you pick to surround yourself with and your friend group, um, second only to your spouse and family are going to have the biggest influence on how you end up and how you end up living your life. You know, pick your friends uh, carefully is certainly uh, one of the big messages. Um, but what what got me thinking about Scott? Um, uh, what were we just talking about? The uh, loneliness epidemic, especially amongst yeah, men. Yeah, um, I've I have a uh, that is one of uh, of the uh, my book, uh, the, the Art of Playing Defense, is sort of a funny name for like a how to be successful book. And the reason I wrote it this way is um, because I was writing a book for my daughters on how to achieve success and happiness. And as I was writing it, I sort of lost momentum and I was sort of bored. And for like a year, I didn't write anything. Um, And I realized eventually why, because it's boring. Um, There are thousands of books out there on how to be happy and successful. So what I did is I channeled my inner Charlie Munger, where Charlie Munger is always talking about calamities and the 24 causes of human misjudgment is one of his favorite speeches. And he always says, invert, always invert. And so what I instead said is, is what, and, and I had put together a presentation on the five calamities that can destroy your life and how to avoid them. And it was a PowerPoint presentation. 
And every time I gave it, it was, oh, my, the audience was, I would get the best response from that. Of, and I've got dozens of presentations, mostly on investing and short selling and, and behavioral finance or whatever. But this one, wow, I got a great response. So I was like, I should frame the book this way. So I inverted and the book is structured around those five calamities. And so the overarching theme is the art of playing defense. In other words, if you want to be successful in life, don't think about how can I play better offense, right? How can I grab that brass ring or whatever? It's instead, um, obviously, you want to be working hard and building relationships and having integrity and doing all the right things. And I do include that in the book. But once you reach a certain level of success um, and comfort, your main objective should be not to lose it all and how not to have your life ruined, even if you're really successful. Um, and so the, that's why I structure the book um, around these calamities. And one of the five, uh, the chapter is entitled Loneliness or Ruptured Relationships uh, with a Loved One. So... Yeah. Um, uh, you know, that's a, that's a big time calamity. Uh, Buffett and Munger are always talking about the billionaires that they know or observe who are three times divorced, their spouses hate them, their children hate them. And, you know, Munger loves to, he chuckles and tells the story about, he tells two somewhat related stories that he's like, you don't want to be the guy who at your funeral, everybody's there. And the the minister says, okay, you know, does someone, uh, you know, want to come up and give a eulogy and say something nice? And nobody moves. And finally, and there's this uncomfortable silence. And finally, somebody says, well, his brother was worse. Okay, oh. that's that's joke number one, he tells. Um, and um, um, I'm trying to think of... Um, I, you know, it's it's uh, I'm I'm having another senior moment, but there's sort of another related joke about sort of at your funeral, um, you know, uh, you know, you don't show want to be to that make guy. Sure that you're really dead yeah. Oh, that's right. That's right. Uh, you know, at your uh, yeah, you 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 probably remember it now better than I do. Whereas, uh, you know, you don't want to be the guy who at your funeral everybody's there just to make sure you're dead. Um, <laughs> um, so so he's joking but he's sort of serious so you can have all the money in the world but if but if uh, if everybody hates you and you have ruptured relationships you're a failure you're miserable yeah well for the folks watching and listening um you mentioned the calamities that was one of the calamities we've kind of talked about them throughout this so um i can list them here you had uh one loss of reputation and or wealth uh, calamity two, we just mentioned, which is loneliness or suffering an impaired uh, relationship with a loved one, a permanently impaired relationship, I should say. Uh, three, a bad marriage, often ending in divorce, which we talked about. Of course, that's the most important decision you make is who you choose to be your partner. Calamity four, addiction and abuse. And calamity number five, the death, serious injury or illness of yourself or a loved one. Yeah. Yeah. Um by the way, on the marriage, that's my favorite chapter. So uh, I always tell people, yeah, look, uh, you know, because basically it covers 100% of all human beings, which is the first part of the chapter is on focused on finding the right person. Um, uh, and uh, and uh, my favorite part is the 12 questions to ask before you marry someone, which is really a collection of, I don't know, 40 questions, you know, structured into 12. And then the second half 
of the chapter is um, is on how not to screw up your marriage. Um, so, you know, the second half of the chapter basically says, as soon as you're married, throw the 12 questions away. You're now committed and you want to make this a success. Um, and I'll tell you, I'd say two thirds of the divorces I've observed among my friends and family, um, it wasn't a mistake on the way in. They married a good person. They had a happy marriage for a number of years and then it went south and, and went bad. Right. And one third of the time, they just made a bad mistake as a young person and married, married someone they shouldn't have married. And the mess, the marriage was doomed. But that means two thirds of the time it wasn't doomed marriages that went bad. Right. And so thinking so, um, you know, if, if I were to summarize the 12 questions, the first the first question relates to is is, is the person you're considering marrying a kind and good hearted person. Um, would anyone say they had a mean bone in their body? Um, how do they treat um, people beneath them? You know, waiters, Uber drivers, that kind of thing. Um, and uh, the, a funny question, but I think there's a lot of truth to it is, is do dogs and children like them? Um, so that's all question one it goes to their heart, right? Um, and then there's a whole series of questions about, you know, if you weren't romantically involved, uh, would you still be friends? Do they make you a better person? Do they you know, do they have a purpose in life? You know, um, uh, because I'm assuming my readers have a purpose in life. People with a purpose and who have some drive and whatever, don't you don't want to marry a lump. Um, uh, but a lot of basic questions. Um, it, when you have kids, um, you know, who's is one of you going to take time out of your career? And, and uh, how are you going to share the child caring duties? Um, do you have similar views about money and, and how frugal or how extravagant are you? Um, et cetera, et cetera. And then the last question is, is do you have a wild and passionate sex life? Um, and I throw that in there and I say, I deliberately put it in last because a lot of young people seem to put it first. And um, so I know I know guys who are trapped in miserable marriages with young kids, so they feel like they can't get out, but they married someone who's just not a very nice person or whatever, but she was very hot and beautiful and, you know, they had a great sex life and, you know, young guys um, and young gals, I'm sure, you know, tend to overweight that factor. Um, so that's sort of a quick overview of some of the highlights of the 12 questions, but then it's like, okay, now, now you're married. Um, you know, I cannot think of, a, of the two thirds of marriages that ended that were good to start where they married a good person. I cannot think of a single one that ended suddenly. Okay. In other words, they didn't, uh, you know, uh, go to jail. They didn't, uh, you know, um, cheat, uh, cheat, uh, on their spouse on a trip to Vegas or something sudden. Um, it, all of them went bad slowly. Um, and there wasn't any one thing. It was a collection of things. And my one observation is, is it's very easy to get sloppy in, in how you treat someone. If you live with them all the time, um, and to just have these annoying little habits and all, but if you, um, if you keep these annoying little habits and don't deal with them, they could build up. Um, and, um, it's, it's, um, here's the thing, you know, Julia, you and I are friends, right? Yes. If I treated you badly and started being nasty and unpleasant to you, you just wouldn't be my friend anymore. Right. You got lots of other friends, right? It wouldn't, you just go away as a friend, right? Yeah. They're 
lots of other people out there to be friends of with. Of course, yeah. of course. So um, you got to be careful how you treat your friends or they won't be your friends for very much longer. But you can treat your spouse really, really crappy for a lot of years. And they're probably not going to divorce you. Okay. Not, not, not immediately. Right. So in other words, the fact that you're in a really committed relationship and you got kids and, and you have the security, which is a good thing, generally, that, that, that you know, they ain't going anywhere and, and, you know, your marriage is intact and going to go on, right? That security is a good thing, but it can also lead to people getting sloppy. And so when I look at marriages um, uh, where I've had sort of a front row seat because it's happened to a close friend or family member, um, it's sort of um, initial trigger points and points of irritation, which then aren't really addressed with. And it's like a burr under the saddle of a horse that rubs and rubs, and then it gets infected and then it gets gangrenous and then it kills the horse, right? Like it can, it can, these, these little things can cause little resentment that then cause the other person to behave a little badly toward you. And you sort of get almost get this tit for tat behavior that can get you on a slow spiral downward. And, and it happens so slowly. It's like the old parable about the frog boiling, right? Um, yep. It can happen slowly. And unless and, and I'll tell you, writing this book and seeing this and trying to put it in writing to teach my daughters so that this doesn't happen to them has actually made my marriage better because I come home and when I was writing the book and I would read part of a chapter, a page or two to my wife about, you know, you want to be careful about throwing your stinky clothes on the floor or hogging the sheets at night or leaving the toilet seat up or, you know, not if, if, you know, Susan does all the cooking and if I don't say thanks, that was a delicious meal, honey, thank you, or something, you know, showing some appreciation for something she's done, right? If you just get sloppy and don't treat someone nicely um, and do things that irritate them, it can really over time, long periods of time. So I'll give you another one of the most impactful quotes I ever heard from Buffett is um, he said, the chains of habit are too light to be felt until they are too heavy to be broken. So if you just think about all the little habits about how you treat your spouse, how you, uh, whether you exercise, whether you eat um, healthily or not, um, those little habits over the course of a day, a week, a month, a year, aren't likely to make any impact on your life, right? But over a long period of time, if you get into bad habits uh, over a number of years, it's the only thing that matters. It'll be it'll be the 90% determinant of the trajectory of your life, right? Mm -hmm. So that's sort of the main message of my the second half of my book, which is be very conscious of your behavior toward your spouse. Don't take them for granted. Um, and, and there will always be stresses in marriage. Marriages go up and down. My marriage, I would, uh, on a scale of one to 10, it has ranged over 29 and a half years now from a six to a nine and a half. Um, I'm pleased to say today, I'd put it close to the high end of that range. But, um, so in, when I say that I'll point to one, I would never say it's been a 10. 
Um, I don't think that's very realistic. I don't think very many people have that. And uh, it's just probably not going to happen. So, so that's okay. You just need to have it be north of an eight. That's a happy marriage, right? right? Anytime you start to get, it starts to trickle down to the six or a seven. Here's the thing. Um, a lot of couples, and I noticed this until I started writing my book, I realized that, you know, Susan and I weren't communicating on some of the things that I was doing that irritated the crap out of her and some of the things she was doing that irritated the crap out of me. Right. And so I would come home and I'd read her things about this book and she'd say, man, Whitney, you are the biggest hypocrite. Here you are talking about habits like, you know, not leaving clothes on the floor and the toilet seat up. But that's exactly what you do. And it annoys me. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. You know, she was right. Yeah. And so I stopped doing it. But, you know, it had it took me after 20. I was writing this book, I don't know, three years ago. So it was after 25 years of marriage. I was still doing these stupid little things. I'd gotten into bad habits that were irritating Susan and therefore affecting our relationship. So um, so the key is, is look, um, often it's external stressors. You have a kid with special needs um, or who gets sick. Um, uh, uh, you're an elderly parent needs more care. Um, one of you loses a job. Um, one of you has uh, suffers an illness or an injury, right? Um, these are things that have nothing to do with, you know, your habits and how you treat each other. They, there are external stressors and every human being and every couple has ups and downs uh, in their life. And during those down periods, you got to be there for each other, but you got to understand that that will um, put stress uh, on your marriage for sure. Um, and the key is though, is if you get down to a six or a seven, you got to have a conversation and you got to say, you know, look, I feel like we're not in a great place right now. Um, I feel like you're angry and upset with me, um, uh, at least not, if not all the time, at least too often. And I've noticed that. And I feel the same way. I, I feel angry and upset with you. And, and let's talk about it. And I don't want to be angry and upset with you ever, um, or certainly a lot less. So let's figure it out because the marriages that end, that end up ending, they they started out as an eight or a nine and then they went to a seven and then they went to a six and that was sort of the key point because once you get under six your marriage is in trouble um so the key is and my marriage has been at a six at times and the key is is can you recognize it and then can you communicate and so that you can uh, you know jointly try and address it um uh, um because once, because the marriages that have ended, and it's always a train wreck, it's just a horrific train wreck. They they didn't go from eight to two overnight, or even over one or two or three years. They went from eight to two over five to 10 years, if not 15 years. Um, and they, so they went slowly, eight, seven, six, and then there was no intervention. So then it went five, four, three, tick, tick, boom. Uh, that's, uh, that's what you got to avoid. So we've talked about, um, the, a, a bad marriage or that ending in divorce is one of the calamities. Another calamity that you talk about is, uh, death, serious injury or illness of yourself or a loved one. And I imagine that also ties into the importance of risk management, probably a huge theme, uh, when you think about avoiding these calamities in life. Talk to me about that one. 
Yeah, um, it's one I think about a lot because I do a lot of dangerous things. Yes, you do. Um, uh, I have um, uh, I have an adrenaline gene. Um, not I wouldn't say an extreme one, but pretty high up there. <laughs> um, I have no desire to free solo Al Capitan like Alex Honnold did in that movie where one slip and you die. On the other hand, that movie inspired me to hire a guide and climb El Capitan over four days up 3,000 feet of rock, dangling by a rope, you know, 3,000 feet above the valley floor, sleeping three nights, you know, in a portal ledge on the on the face, which is not risk free. Um, so this chapter sort of this chapter doesn't say, hey, you know, don't take any risks or whatever. Um, in fact, I encourage people to do bold things and. Um, and, uh, uh, but you want to, but, um, think very carefully about how bold, um, and then think very carefully, okay, if I am going to get into mountaineering and rock climbing, um, which I have done, um, in, uh, in addition to LCAP, you know, I've climbed Mont Blanc, the Matterhorn, the Eiger, um, you know, in the United States, just in the past couple of years, climbed Mount Whitney, Mount Shasta, I'm um, going to do the Grand Teton shortly, so, um, so, you know, any, anytime you're up there at high elevation, uh, particularly when you're rock climbing or mountaineering, where you have lots of exposure, where an uncontrolled fall is fatal, um, you need to be thinking very carefully about risk, not only risk of a fall, but actually the biggest risk is a rock fall, a rock coming down from above and hitting you in the head. You have done nothing wrong and you're still dead, um, or a lightning strike hitting you. Um, there, I have thought so carefully about these risks. So, um, but look, I realize 99% of your listeners aren't going to be climbing El Cap or any of these mountains I've just named. Um, the point, though, here is, is to think about uh, what the risks are and how do you mitigate them. In my case, um, I fortunately am wealthy enough to afford to hire a professional guide. And so the only time I am ever up there on a rock or a mountain is when I'm roped to a one of the uh, what's called an a, a, AFMGA certifies the highest level of international certification for any mountain or climbing guide. Um, you know, these guys are like the LeBron Jameses of mountaineering and climbing. Um, and when I'm roped to them, our interests are highly aligned. <laughs> if I fall, they're probably falling too. Um, and so they keep me safe. Um, and so that takes something that quite a few people die. Uh, just Google Mont Blanc deaths or, um, or Matterhorn deaths or El Capitan deaths. And every year, a bunch of people are dying on these mountains. Uh, but in, if you look closely, and I have looked closely, it's all because they were out there um, by themselves or with another inexperienced person. Um, it, it almost almost never happens that anyone dies uh, when they've hired a professional guide because uh, these guys are the best and they keep you safe. Um, so um, other areas that I talk about in this chapter are car safety. I've had multiple friends um, um, be, be in serious car accidents defined as car totaled and injuries to people in the car, um, including two friends who've lost college age children who died in car accidents. So. Um, you know, I tell all my friends, I, you know, I come from a family where we didn't own a new car for my entire life until I was out on my own after business school. And my wife and I bought a new car. Um, but otherwise, my parents have only owned used cars because my dad's sort of mechanical and they're cheapskates. And um, I think that's a mistake today with the car safety that's out there to drive an old car. Um, my friend's children who died, died in old cars that didn't have all the latest safety features. Um, 
So um, uh, I, I, if for a cheapskate like me, um, I drive uh, one of the world's safest cars, a Volvo, um, and a newer model. Um, even though normally, you know, at one time I was driving a 10-year-old Volvo and then realized as I was doing research on safety features that the newer, the newer Volvos, um, so I spent a bunch of money just to buy a new version of the same car that I already had. And lo and behold, my wife fell asleep at the wheel a year later, went off the road, um, crashed in, uh, uh, car was totaled. Um, fortunately, she was completely unhurt, um, but it could have been uh, a fatal accident had she gone down a ravine or gone head on into a tree. Um, and been in an older car. Uh, so, you know, that was a, a real lesson. And it's not just happened with uh, that accident with my wife, but people very close to me, um, my first cousin, some of my closest friends have had accidents, either themselves or their children. Or in one case, my cousin, his nanny was driving a car, took a left-hand turn into oncoming traffic and the car hit their car broadside and his two of his three children were sitting in the passenger side of the car in the front and the back. Um, one of his children got a concussion, uh, you know, could have easily been a fatal accident, but thank goodness it was a BMW or something, a car with a really good structural uh, passenger cage with side airbags. Otherwise, his kids would probably be dead. Um, so uh, so that's uh, that's a whole area. I talk a little bit about, you know, riding motorcycles and the dangers of that. Um, uh, the single most dangerous thing I do is as soon as we finish this call, I'm going to hop on my bike and bike down to Midtown to an appointment. Um, it is not as dangerous as mountain climbing per day or per hour, but I ride my bike in New York City on the streets of Manhattan, which is not a very bike friendly city um, every day, whereas I climb mountains, you know, one to two weeks a year. So cumulatively over the course of a year. Um, Joy, you can refer back to this podcast uh, in my eulogy. I confidently predict that if I die prematurely, it's not going to be from doing something crazy. It's just going to be riding bike in the city, and I ran a red light, or just got unlucky. You know, a car did a car ran a red light, or I ran a red light, right? So, um, what do I do to mitigate risk on my bike? Um, I have invested, actually, I have it in my pocket right now. Uh, those of you watching the video here, this is one of the four lights I have on my bike. Let's see if I can turn it on here. Um, I am holding an incredibly bright blinking red light up right now for those of you listening to this. Um, and this goes on, this is, a, this is not some cheapo little battery powered thing. It's a $70 LED light with extremely high lumens that makes me extremely visible to the people behind me, the cars behind me. I have an equally bright white light on my handlebars going forward. And then on top of that, I wear a helmet. It's called a Lumos, L-U-M-O-S. I highly recommend it. That has embedded blinking lights in the front and back. So basically, even during the daytime, not just at night, I have these lights on and blinking um, and they make me highly visible. Um, another example is, is a few years ago, uh, my bike was wearing out. Um, the brakes weren't um, um, as good as they once were. And you know what? I said, I said, I can't mess around with this. I went to the bike store, dropped 1500 bucks on a new street bike, which has hydraulic disc brakes. So now in an emergency stop situation, um, I can probably stop in half the distance um, as with my old bike. That half the distance uh, could be the difference between um, getting run over by a bus or it very narrowly whizzing in front of me um, as I come to a stop, right? So, so again, um, 
even something very basic, you know, everybody rides a bike at some point or another, um, thinking very carefully about whether the bike itself is safe and in good condition and can you can maneuver quickly and particularly stop quickly, and whether you're lit up like a Christmas tree so cars and pedestrians and other bikes and people can see you so you're highly visible. So again, investing a fair amount of money um, in taking something I do that I recognize as dangerous um, and um, not stopping doing it, but taking steps and making investments to mitigate that risk. That's the yeah. key. Mitigating risk. Well, you are a lot braver than I am, Whitney, because I am that person who would like walk their bike to Central Park, uh, not not riding. Yeah, uh, I, I I don't want to. I mean, you're super cautious. Um, the one of the reasons I recognize this is that I'm always sort of in a hurry, and so. I, I know that I, about you. I am a very skilled bike rider in that I can stop on a dime and I'm very aware of things around me. On the other hand, uh, I, uh, I am an aggressive rider as well. Mm -hmm. I will admit to that. And the, probably the single biggest thing I could do to improve safety is to slow down, um, you know, come to a complete stop at all red lights and stop signs, et cetera. Um, all right. That's my, that's my new year's resolution. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> be safe. And I don't want this to be your last podcast. Um, yes. I do want to talk about markets with you um, because I was actually looking back on an interview we did after you closed your hedge fund. Yeah. Um, and I think we were, at the time we were talking about, it was like a comp complacent bull market at the time. And um, yeah. that was probably 2017 when we had yeah. that conversation. Now that we're, we're into 2023, what's kind of your, big picture take of the markets right now and your outlook? Um, generally speaking, I'm actually reasonably bullish today. We It was a dreadful year last year. Dow down almost 10, S&P down almost 20, NASDAQ down more than 30. Um, and uh, um, you know, I read somewhere that the average individual investor's portfolio you know, through November, the market was, I don't know, um, or maybe through October. So the it may even be worse than this, but the average Ameri the average investor's portfolio is down 44%. Um, so probably end of the year, somewhere in the down 40 range, right? Because the average investor doesn't own the S&P 500. They own a mix of things, but generally smaller stocks, more aggressive stocks, probably own some cryptos, some SPACs, you know, that were down 80%. Um, and so the average investor did much worse than the indices, Um and so it's been uh, carnage out there. Um, but that look, the more blood in the streets there is, the more bullish I get, of course. Um, you know, I've made my career on being willing to wade into buying in October 2002, in March 2009, um, in March uh, 2020, you know, the generational, not generational, but decade bottoms. Uh, of the market. And I don't claim to have perfect timing in each case, but pretty, pretty good timing. You know, I didn't start buying too, too early. Um, and so, you know, where are we today? You know, we're certainly nowhere near any of those three bottoms in terms of sentiment and valuations and things blown out. On the other hand, we're not in any, you know, uh, economy threatening, uh, you know, calamities right now. Um, yes, uh, the Fed has raised interest rates. That has certainly slowed down the economy. It's really slowed down the housing market, which is a big, big part of the economy. 
Um, but none of the conditions are out there, I think, that uh, that uh, lead me to think we're going to have some big economic uh, contraction, recession, uh, much less a depression. Banks are incredibly healthy. Um, lending standards have remained very tight since the global financial crisis. Um, you know, I, tr I tried to get a home equity. I, I didn't try. I applied for a home equity line of credit. And I have very good credit. I have no debt. Um, you know, I've got plenty of assets, good income, whatever. And they they gave me a root canal to 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 get a million dollar HELOC on a three million dollar apartment. I mean, it was it, I couldn't believe it, but it sure made me believe. I'm like, wow, if they're giving me this kind of root canal. There can just cannot be any fraud out there in the mortgage market, for example. Um, so that was good. Um, you know, unemployment is uh, near all-time lows, uh, um, and you know, so that means and wages are rising, particularly for people in the bottom half of the income distribution, which bodes well for consumer spending, which is seventy percent of GDP. So, so look, I'm I'm certainly aware of all the gloom and doom stuff out there, um, and uh, you know, if Russia starts using nukes in Ukraine or China. Uh, invades Taiwan, sort of all bets are off. But um, so there are always black swans out there. But um, by and large, I think the economy is actually doing reasonably well. And secondly, I think inflation was the big thing that was causing the Fed to ra raise rates and so forth. And I'm actually fairly convinced that inflation, the, the decline we've seen uh, over the last few months is going to continue. I don't think we get back down to 2% anytime soon. But I do think we get back to 4% in the first half of the year. And at that point, the Fed is definitely not tightening anymore, may even start easing a little bit. Um, and that'll be good for so the combination of, you know, the Fed no longer being a headwind. Um, keep in mind, the normal direction for stocks is up. Um, so after you've had a big drawdown, I think that's especially true after a bad year like last year. Um, the inflation moving in the right direction, and unless corporate earnings take a bath, which I don't see happening, um, uh, you know, due to a big recession, uh, you know, that makes me, you know, fairly constructive. I, 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 I'm not sure we're going to have a melt up, but um, you know, my best guess 2023 is is you know the market's up 15 to 20 percent, which would be a, you know, very good good solid year. Mm -hmm. Like you mentioned, uh, reasonably bullish. Let me ask you this, because I've, I've had some folks in the value investing community on this pod, even folk, um, some folks have said like they think that it's going to be a great environment for value investing, also stock picking, um, stock picking coming back into favor. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, that's sort of a cliche, you know, there's a stock pickers market. I mean, um, you know, I, I mean, there's some truth to it in that, look, from the bottom in March of 09 until the COVID um, crash, you know, you had a bull market where basically it wasn't a stock pickers market. It was just a it was just a growth investors market. It was just be a be fully invested market. And basically, the more risk you took, the more you were rewarded. Obviously, over that time period, if you bought Bitcoin, you make you know the most risky asset I can imagine. You made a hundred times your money probably in in that time period, if not a thousand times. Um, but the most aggressive uh, growth stocks, the the kinds of stuff, uh, things that Kathy Wood uh, at Arc owns, you know, that stuff uh, sort of ran up the most. And, you know, but that stuff has now also been clobbered the most in the past year. I'm, you know, I would like to think that just good, solid value investing, you know, sort of has its run because it, it had a run for the first 10 years I was running a hedge fund after the collapse of the internet bubble, which was, you know, a real growth stock nifty 50 kind of bubble, 
that took place over 10 years or so, you basically had sort of, you know, from 99 into the global financial crisis, you know, you had almost a decade long run um, in which value stocks and long, short, you know, traditional value investing uh, really worked. It worked great for me. Um, but then after that, you just sort of had this 10 year run where stock picking didn't matter much and anything you shorted, you got killed on and um, and you just wanted the more you know, you're just rewarded, rewarded, rewarded for risk. Um, I suspect we're, we're probably the cycle has turned again. And my, my guess is is probably right um, that um, that, you know, good sound stock picking that you, you're just not going to be able to throw darts and be rewarded or just do aggressive, foolish things and be rewarded. Um, you know, that said, if the Fed does stop tightening and starts easing, the most beaten down stuff probably will pop the most, right? So, you know, my general forecast of 15 to 20% S&P 500, in that environment, um, you know, Berkshire Hathaway will probably do 20, 25%, might do, a, it's a little bit undervalued, might do a little better than the market, but a good quality um, tech stock um, like, uh, you know, the most beaten down would be Facebook, but, uh, uh, you know, and Netflix and Amazon are three of my favorites among the big tech stocks. Um, I throw PayPal in there. You know, my, my guess is, is those stocks go up 30 to 40 percent because they got hammered the most in the downturn. I mean, PayPal was down 80 percent and it's still down not far from its lows. Um, you know, uh, Meta went down 80% from like a trillion dollar market cap, over a trillion dollars, lost 80% of its market cap peak, peak to trough, uh, certainly more than 70%. Um, you know, it's it's had a rally, but it's still down probably 60% from its peak. So, um, you know, those were some pretty severe drawdowns of some pretty incredible businesses. Mm -hmm. You mentioned just like some of these um, these names. What are some of like the big higher conviction ideas that you have or big themes that you're um, looking at right now? Well, I always start out by just telling the average investor, the average person listening to this shouldn't be picking stocks at all. Like my parents basically don't pick any stocks. Um, uh, I just have them in the S&P 500. Um, I don't want the pressure and brain damage of, of picking stocks for my parents. Um, that was stressful enough. Um, you know, when I was doing it as running a hedge fund, managing anybody else's money is, uh, is a stressful thing, especially during downtimes, of course. Um, so, um, my sister, her hundred percent of her uh, retirement account, um, is just in the S and P 500. That's it. And that's all she's owned for like 20 years. And you know what? She's outperformed 99% of everybody just doing that. Um, so, um, my first, first advice is, and by the way, in my investment newsletter business, we have a policy where I cannot own anything we recommend in our newsletters. And we have seven different newsletters and dozens of stock recommendations. I can't own any of them. So I had to sell my Berkshire Hathaway when we launched my business and, and we recommended you Berkshire to, Hathaway. You had to sell your Berkshire Hathaway? I know it kills me. Um, what? but you know, look, it's, Berkshire's going to do a few points better than the S&P 500, but uh, no, I'm not crying the fact that I just instead bought the S&P 500 index instead of Berkshire, right? I'll do a few points. I'll do fine. A couple points worse than, than Berkshire, but that's okay. Um, so, uh, but I, but it, so I'd start with the S&P 500. Um, then uh, I put Berkshire Hathaway on it, uh, which today is 12 or 13% undervalued. So I think you'll do a couple points better than the S&P um, owning Berkshire is very well diversified. 
And, you know, so S&P 500 could be 50% of your portfolio. Berkshire, it might be 10 or 15%, right? But then nothing else would be bigger than 5%, right? Any individual stock. But, you know, my three favorite tech stocks for a number of years now have been uh, Amazon, Alphabet, um, and um, 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 now Meta platforms. Uh, I always, of course, I think of it as uh, as uh, Facebook. Uh, so, um, so you know, look, um, you could do you can do worse than Berkshire and those three tech giants and call it a day. We talked about calamities in your book, but we haven't talked about calamities in markets and investing. What do you think are the calamities that investors should watch out for? Uh, there are dozens and dozens of them, of course, but big picture, big picture, the surest way to get poor quickly is to try to get rich quickly. Okay, so um, investing um, and building wealth over time is something where you just need to get time working on your side and not blow up, not have any big blow ups or big drawdowns. The math behind big drawdowns is devastating. If you take a lifetime in which you are trying to save um, and, and build wealth for a comfortable retirement, maybe an early retirement or something, means you can't have any zeros in there. You can never blow up and go to zero. And basically the only way that can happen is if you use margin. So basically never use margin, number one. Generally don't use options, right? So, but before, let me back up before I give investing advice, which is, the key is you really what you really want to do is do what my parents have done, which is they, they don't know anything about investing. For my parents are 81 and 82 years old since the age of 21. So for 60 years, they've been at it. They've been teachers, educators. They've never, neither has ever earned a high income. But every single year, to my knowledge, um, until their retirement, at least, they have lived beneath their means. Whatever your income is, your after-tax income is, is you must control your expenses such that every year you spend less than you earn. And what that means is by definition, you are saving money every year. Now, the simplest, best, most obvious way to do this is with your employer. Hopefully you have an employer who has an, a retirement program and it's automatically withdrawn from your paycheck. Um, and to this day, even, you know, in, in my, you know, after decades and I've achieved some wealth and so forth, to this day, this month in January, I'm maxing out my maximum amount that I am allowed to set aside tax-free in my retirement account. Um, and tax-free money is super valuable to have, much more valuable than taxable money when you compound it out over a lifetime, right? if you don't have to pay taxes on your gains every year. So it's but so it's very important that it's tax-free, but it's very important that I never see the money. It never goes into my bank account. It's withdrawn and sent over to whatever it is, my account at Fidelity or whatever. And generally, uh, I think in all my accounts, I think I may have it, it should be automatically invested in the S&P 500 index fund. Now, if, you, if I want to buy a stock or something, I can sell some of the index fund and buy the stock, but the default for the for a person doing this um, uh, is just put it in the S&P 500 index fund. Then, um, uh, so max out on your retirement, everything you can set aside and hopefully your employer has a matching program for the first 3% or something like that. Now that's really free money. That's It's absolutely insane not to take advantage of an employer's match if you're lucky enough to have an employer that does that. But even if you don't have an employer that will do this for you, you can just set up a Roth IRA, do a little paperwork at Vanguard or Fidelity or E-Trade or something, and you can do it yourself, but it requires a little more effort. Um, it's much easier just have it happen automatically.
So that those would be the first two keys um, or first three keys. One, have a steady income and don't get fired and don't go start trying to do your own thing, selling Herbalife shakes or other nonsense that people get sucked into. You know, get a good job, build a good stable career and get a spouse who also has a good stable career. So you have two incomes every year. That's what my parents did for 60 years. Okay. Then they controlled, secondly, they controlled their expenses such they were net savers every single year for 60 years. And then thirdly, have that net savings um, automatically taken out of your paycheck so you never see it and have the maximum put into your retirement accounts every year. And then ideally, there's more, more savings than that, in which case you just set up a taxable uh, account somewhere. Um, and so you understand all the things I've just said have nothing to do with investing. You don't need to be a good stock picker. You don't need to find the next Bitcoin or whatever. You know. Um, so the last piece of it and the least important piece of achieving long-term wealth is how you invest that money that you've now set aside every year. And there, that's where I'll return to what I was saying earlier, which I shouldn't have led with because it's actually the least important part of it. But the key there is, is just don't blow yourself up and do something stupid, right? That's the most important thing. And the easiest way to do that is, is again, don't even look at it. Just have it automatically rolled into the S&P 500. And as, as if it's in your long-term account, you're not going to need it anytime soon. Just leave it there and ignore the stock market. Let the stock market go up and down. Turn off the CNBC um, and, and whatever. So, um, you know, at that point, to the extent that you want to try and do a little better than the market and you enjoy investing and all, at that point, maybe sign up for one of my newsletters and I'll try and give you my best advice and a good stock idea every month in each of my newsletters, right? I'll put in a little plug here for for my oh, go business. Go ahead, Zorb, do, it, do um, it. But 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 I'm telling you, this is at the very this is the very least important um thing um and you can live a long and happy life like my parents for 61 years of savings and they've now accumulated never ever once having had any big payday any big inheritance anything um just as teachers basically and educators um they have accumulated you know, a multi-million dollar nest egg um, um and that's that's solely the power of compounding um, me putting them in the S&P 500 25 years ago when they moved over to Africa and I took over their financial accounts and they were sitting mostly in cash. I said, that's silly. You know, you shouldn't at the age of 50, you shouldn't be sitting mostly in cash. You should be sitting mostly in stocks. Um, and so, yeah, they put some of it in my hedge fund, but most of it was just in the S&P 500. And, and again, they just saved and saved every year and let the power of long-term compounding uh, work. And they never once screwed it up and did something foolish. I love it. Well, Whitney, there's so much worldly wisdom in this conversation. Really appreciate you taking the time. Whitney Tilson, founder and CEO of Empire Financial Research and the author of the book, The Art of Playing Defense, How to Get Ahead by Not falling behind. Really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much, Whitney. My pleasure. Hey, everyone. I really hope you enjoyed that video. Be sure to hit that like button, the subscribe and that bell so you won't miss any new videos.